Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Kate Wright, Managing Director of Henryson Foods International, a leading importer and distributor of specialist ambient, chilled, and frozen food items from Europe and the United Kingdom and Ireland. Kate, hello. Hi there, Matthew. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for coming on the program today. Now, normally we'd get straight on into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID situation, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, how has this affected your business? Um, Well, obviously, it's had a huge impact um, because a lot of our customers are in the food service sector, um, which, as everybody knows, pretty much came to a grinding halt um, at the end of March. So really, um, we had an immediate issue of lots of cancelled orders, lots of people refusing to accept orders, you know, that had been booked in advance. Um, So that created a big headache for us because for the chilled products that we deal in, they have a short shelf life. So trying to find a home for, you know, sort of 10 pallets of eggs last minute when when restaurants are all shutting down um, was not easy. So it was stressful in the short term trying to deal with, um, you know, uh, overstocking on chilled products. And then, of course, uh, as everything began to sink in and you don't know how long the situation is going to continue, it becomes stressful in the medium to long term um, because then you have to start thinking about furloughing staff and, you know, looking at your sales projections. Um, and, yes, it's obviously quite an uh, intimidating picture, I would say. Now, of course, uh, we're in this for quite a long haul. Do you feel that you've adequately uh, been able to shift gears to survive throughout the next uh, few months, or are you going to have to continue to assess the situation? Um, I would say definitely we've done very well. I'm I'm quite proud of you know our team as a whole for how we've reacted. Um, some of the staff have been put on furlough, and they've all been really. Uh, supportive and understanding about the situation which has made things easier Um, and then the staff that have stayed in have worked tremendously hard Um, and you know we've had to basically all do jobs that we're not used to doing I've been you know involved in myself sorting out a lot more to do with payroll and furlough than I ever normally do Um, I've had people you know much more involved in the technical side of our business which still needs to run because some of the technical team were on furlough so we've all had to kind of expand our skill base at short notice to cover more of one another's roles I would say Um, but that is working well now and actually I've I've brought back half the people that were on furlough have now been brought back so we now only have um, two, two or three, three people rather left on furlough at the moment. So the situation is improving for sure, um, and it looks like it will continue. Obviously, we may have these regional lockdowns, but I think as long as we don't go into a national lockdown again, um, then hopefully we'll have some kind of stability that we can work with now. Now, we should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? 
Uh, well, so I'm, uh, I suppose, a big uh, believer in leading by example. I don't give people tasks that I wouldn't be willing to do myself. Obviously, I don't do all the tasks myself. So I have to delegate. I don't have time to do everything. But I like to show people that I'm willing to you know, take a hit, as it were, whether it be in terms of pay or whether it be in terms of doing some of the kind of less pleasant jobs in the office, um, you know, if I have to, and always being polite to people and generally treating people how you wish to be treated. I think it's also really important to have a clear plan and a clear vision and to communicate that properly to people so that everybody knows what what the idea is and what the goal is. Um, and to hopefully have just a supportive atmosphere where people feel free to suggest ideas and people feel free to own up if they've made a mistake and not worry that they're going to get shouted down or any of this kind of nonsense. Um, yeah, for me, I think it's about trying to lead by example, really. And how would you say that you came to your philosophy on leadership? Did you have a, a role model or a, a set of circumstances that shaped you in this way? Um, I would say partly it's from working uh, in previous organizations where you can see what you don't think is working well. So, for example, um, out of university, I worked in an organization where I really didn't feel that there was clear leadership and there wasn't a clear plan. And that's frustrating because you feel that, you you know, you don't really know what you're supposed to be doing half the time or if the direction you're moving in is the right one. Um, but then, yeah, also partly I think it's from my father. Um, he was very decisive as as a kind of person and I think that in general is a good thing. You want leaders to be decisive as well. So I try to um, not spend too long deliberating on things and to, you know, uh, move forward as much as I can. So, yeah, I think it's a mixture of different, of different people that I've met in my life and different jobs that I've done. Now, of course, a leadership faces its uh, hardest challenge when it comes up against conflict. What's your uh, uh, recipe for resolving conflict within the workplace? Well, I think the first thing and probably the most important thing is to listen. It's very easy to uh, have your own take on something before you've actually heard everybody's side of the matter, everyone's perspective. So when there is conflict in the office, the first thing I would I try to do is to have a chat with the people involved one on one and actually just listen to what their side is, what their you know kind of uh, worries are. And I think so often you can resolve things really quickly just by actually listening to what the problem is because quite often people have misunderstood something or they're worrying about something and you can allay those fears just by having a straightforward conversation so I think number one is listen number two is don't ever lose your temper don't shout or any of these things nobody comes into work to be shouted at quite frankly so I think it's important to, to stay calm as well um, and to try and be fair to everyone and be consistent. You know, you can't apply one rule to one person one time and a different rule another time. You have to be able to draw on previous examples of conflict and say to people, well, this is how we dealt with it then. 
and these are the reasons why. And so this is how we're going to deal with it now as well. I think, you know, p employees really want to feel and see that they are being treated equally. Um, so, yes, that is how I try to do it. Now, of course, uh, leadership is a behavior that needs to be passed on to the next generation. Um, do you have any sort of mentorship opportunities within your organization, or is it more of a ad hoc, under your wing sort of affair? Yeah, I mean, I would say we're only a relatively, you know, small company. There's only seven of us, so it's not. Um, it's very kind of easy for me to have quite a close relationship in mentoring terms with everybody in the company. Um, and I do try and help, you know, as much as I can in the areas that I feel I'm, you know, best at. In certain areas, I'm really not the best person in the company to be mentoring anybody. And there are other people within the company that are much more useful, um, you know, in those roles. So, but yeah, everybody, uh, I, I try and give everybody some mentoring in terms of just generally how to interact um, with one another, with other companies in the business, just to try and create a good uh, impression of the company and, and a good ethos within the company. Um, and then anybody who's doing a commercial role, I will give proper mentoring, you know, sort of one-on-one -on -one training too. Um, but people in other roles, in accounts roles and technical roles, will have mentoring from the experts in those areas rather than me because I'm not an expert in those areas. Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, Kate, what does the next 12 months have in store for Henryson Foods International? Well, I think it's obviously going to continue to be challenging for a number of reasons. Um, regards to the whole COVID business, I would say I feel that we are definitely past the worst of it. Our sales are probably now back up to three-quarter of normal level. Um, and while that's not ideal, we can certainly function like that going forwards if we need to for, you know, another 12 months. So I'm not worried on that front. I am worried about the challenges of Brexit coming up at the end of this year because now the government has announced what the tariffs will be in the event that a trade deal is agreed. And there are some sizable tariffs on multiple products that we trade in, such as tuna, eggs, and these will have a direct impact on our business and also on the consumer because tariffs will ultimately get passed on to the consumer. So I worry a lot that there's going to be some kind of rushed trade deal that's all done on the you know 24th of December, and then businesses will be scrambling to try to adjust to it. Um, I think what's happened previously with Brexit negotiations is every time it's been run down to the deadline, and it's really hard for businesses you know, to try and negotiate contracts with customers that last the next 12 months when you don't have clarity on the next three months of what border, you know, sort of procedures are going to be in place and what documentation you're going to need to present when you bring things over the border and all this kind of stuff. So I feel like off the back of COVID, to then have to deal with a rushed sort of uh, trade exit will be very, very difficult for lots of businesses, including ours, and will be hurtful to the consumer. Obviously, I understand Brexit is a done deal. There's no going back on that. That's fine. 
but it would be good to have a sensible amount of implementation time and clarity for businesses on what we're supposed to be doing because we already have so much work to do um, off the back of COVID. Well, I'd like to thank you very much, Kate, for coming on the program today. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today, but I'd like to have you back on at some point in the future. But for now, Kate, thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Kate Wright. Managing Director of Henryson Foods International. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Trescothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname? Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I've only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years Of of age I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. This can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think 
in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role. You know, and just in terms of... Because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... Uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after, because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was Mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, (laughs) like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> only happened for that one night unfortunately but uh, i did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, 
you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm -hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, 
they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job um okay so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the world cup on home soil in yes. 2019 uh i was firstly i was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in world cups and this includes my time as captain we just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move at times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be 
the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was I. Was, yeah. Actually, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. 
Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing re uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves i can feel your enthusiasm for it as a as an essex fan i i'm still stumped as to i think i'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the oval or a team based at lords I, I'll, I'll get over that but i'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it surely it's got to be the lords one right that's sh sh of course yeah. <laughs> um Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today thank you very much cheers this has been the leaders council podcast thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, 
all the guests or any other person therein associated.